0: Welcome to the Travelling Image Makers podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hello, this is episode 58 of the Travelling Image Makers podcast with Ugo Che and Ralph Velasco. Our guest for this week, Anthony Pond, has a story of traveling and photography that goes back several years. Having been to Timbuktu twice and to the rest of Africa a few more times, always in a very adventurous way. Then across the Darien Gap, into the jungles of Borneo and more. And he did all of that with film cameras before the advent of digital. Then he moved to a digital system and he's now back to shooting with a mixture of digital and film exclusively with uh, Leica rangefinders. He says that the usage of film allows him to slow down and force him uh, some deliberation that is not otherwise present with digital. So we hope you will find this conversation as interesting as we did. And uh, for all the links uh, and show notes, you can head over to our website at ttim.photo forward slash 58. Remember, if you want to leave us a review, On iTunes, you will find the link there as well. And now enjoy our conversation with Anthony Pond.
1: Hi everyone, Uh, this is Ralph Velasco, and I'm here with my good friend Tony Pond. Welcome to the show, Tony. Hey, thanks, Ralph. I've also got Ugo here, of course.
0: Yep, thanks, Ralph, and uh, welcome, Tony.
1: Uh, Tony's uh, someone that I recommended that we bring on to the show. Tony and I have known each other for quite a while. It's probably been eight or nine years now. Uh, Tony, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to be interested in photography in the first place?
2: Uh, probably like most people, I traveled a lot in my youth and took a camera along just to capture memories and snapshots. Not as, not as a serious photographer. Uh, eventually, um,
1: photography became more important in my travels, but I've always done a lot of traveling. Tell us about that, because I know uh, you've told me some great stories. Uh, I think you're the only person that I know of who's been to Timbuktu twice. (laughs) (laughs) Give us a brief rundown of some of the more adventurous and exotic places you've been to, because it's a great list.
2: Right. Well, you know, you do the obligatory trip to Europe when you're in college, and then some years after that, I went off to Africa for about four or five months, mainly camping, run, running down from Cairo all the way down to Cape Town, all through East Africa. And that was uh, one big camping trip. Took along a, uh, an Olympus OM2 film camera, two lenses, and a bag of film. Shot slides mostly, but not as a uh, real photographer. Fell in love with Africa. Went back there a couple more times after that, including Timbuktu over uh, a span of 10 years.
0: Did you do the trip down from Egypt to Cape Town with a motorbike like that? What, what was that show that was on the TV sometime? That was the, when, the a long way down. Long right? way down yeah, right?
2: That was yeah. in the mid-80s, and that was with a uh, British overland company. Uh, I don't know if they exist anymore, Encounter Overland, uh, a old reconfigured military truck they supplied all the tents and uh essentially we just drove met i met up with them in nairobi and we drove all the way through various game parks zigzagging down through east africa camping the, the entire way uh cutting firewood drawing water from streams and wells buying food in local markets uh,
1: grand adventure really that's great and you've also uh Oh, told me about the Darien Gap, right? Yeah, I got into adventure travel, and
2: uh, I kind of enjoyed jungles as a result of that African trip. Uh, went over to Borneo, knocked around a bit in Borneo, and then went o- back to uh, found a trip that trekked across Panama uh, by way of the Darien Gap, which is a uh, uh, the only gap in the Pan American Highway that runs from alaska down to the tip of south america it's just very dense jungle they never completed the highway and, and we hiked through that area spent two weeks doing a uh, trek across panama from the caribbean side to the pacific side also uh, shot that same olympus camera shot film of course this was back in the days before digital wasn't a great photographer though but i i uh, did try to
1: record uh you know my trips my travels like i said we've known each other for a long long time and uh when we first met you were very much into digital photography shooting a lot with your canon 5d mark ii and then i know you upgraded to the mark iii and you're also doing quite a bit of video uh now you're shooting almost exclusively black and white images with the leica m system but both film and digital tell us about that transition and why you made it right uh
2: Moving from film to digital back in, their, in the uh, mid-2000s, uh, as you mentioned, we, you and I ran into each other, and I've done a number of trips with you. Um, I kind of like the process of, of photography, and I wanted to go back to the old hands-on, very manual method of doing things, and uh, that kind of got me back into film. I uh, jumped from a DSLR, the Canon system. I tried out the Fuji X100 system for a little while, and then that was my bridge into the Leica rangefinder system, and uh, went digital, and then really made the jump into analog with a couple of uh, Leica analog film cameras. So um, now I'm doing both, probably 60% digital, 40% film on my trips, I'm still I'm straddling both worlds but I think Ralph to answer your question I think it was really uh an infatuation with the whole process you know the the hands-on the slowing down the deliberation of uh, that film gives you
0: do you have a like a different channel or outlet to publish your analog work than you have with digital I mean many people nowadays shoot digital and then publish online on the web and so on. So it's all electronic and very few people still print their photos. Uh, what, what's your right. process? I, do, you, do you go print with digital and analog, or do you use mostly go from analog to print or analog to the web?
2: I'm doing a hybrid process. Um, I've always printed my own digital work at home with a high-ending jet printer. Uh, now with film, I'm doing my own developing Uh, I scan it myself to digitize it and get it into the computer, and then with the intent on making my prints here at home. uh, So it is a hybrid process. I'm capturing the images on film, going through the process of development at home, and then uh, scanning it into the computer. So it now it's somewhat digital. And no, I don't have a separate outlet for the film work. It's going to merge.
1: It's merged into my, in with my digital work. So you don't have a a typical uh, you know, wet dark room at home, right? You're uh, you're telling me a little bit about your process. Can you delve into that a little bit more for us? Uh, right, Ralph. I don't have a real wet dark
2: room. Um, I'm using Lightroom, but uh, with the film, I, I decided instead of sending it to a lab, I wanted to have more control over the whole process. So I. Jumped onto YouTube, started looking up, uh, watching videos on how to develop black and white film at home. Bought the materials. Um, you just need a changing bag to get the film out of the canister and into, de- into a developing tank. And then once it's in a light-proof developing tank, you're at your kitchen sink with your various chemicals. And um, processing the film, developing the film, and hanging it in the shower to uh, dry. Once it's dried, you cut it. Sleeve it, scan it, and um, then it's into
1: Lightroom for fine tuning. About how long does that process take to actually go from you know getting back home and you're you're looking at a print that you've made? Oh, the actual development
2: is under an hour. Okay, A couple hours to dry, and then uh, scanning is kind of slow. My uh, I have a dedicated film scanner. Um, that essentially takes a strip of four or six negatives, but it's each individual frame shows up. You have to make adjustments and scan each individual frame. So the scanning process is kind of slow.
1: But uh, are you are you scanning? Excuse me. Are you scanning every image or just select ones that you really want to you know work on and share?
2: No, I I scan every image. Uh, you don't know what is yeah. going to
1: be attract your eye later
2: on and I don't want to have to go back and rescan so it's just easier for me to scan each image each strip uh, at the time I'm doing it. I have enough storage space to to handle all that
1: yeah no that makes a lot of sense because you're not going to want to go back to that uh, to those strips I'm sure find uh, some old nuggets <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, And and
2: you know how tastes change. You may find uh, you may reject an image as not being very compelling at first, but later on, after some time passes, perhaps your style changes and you may go back and say, hey, you know, that wasn't such a bad image after all.
1: Yeah, and I tend to really I, my system is I use I'm I'm starting to use Lightroom. I ju- you're you're going to be proud of me, Tony, because you've been trying to get <laughs> right, me to move to Lightroom right. for years. Because both of us started with Aperture, I think, or at least you d- you tipped your toes into it. But you've been trying to get me transfer over for quite a while. But so now I'm here, and uh, I'm liking Lightroom a lot. It's much easier than I than I expected that transition. Good to um, hear. Yeah, um, and. I'm, uh, you know, spending time looking at your photography and, and you are almost exclusively black and white now. Is that right?
2: Right. Right. Color is very rare for
1: me now. And And, which is
2: kind of at odds with travel photography.
1: Yeah. I'll talk about that.
2: Well, you know, I, I go to a lot of colorful places. You and I have been to some, you know, with Christmas markets and Cuba and, um, You know, I've gone to India a number of times. I went through the Holy Festival really in-depth, but presented it in in, uh, black and white, Uh, kind of going against the grain. I'm a little bit of a contrarian, so uh, I – there's something about black and white. Uh, It's a timeless image. Reminds me of the old Magnum photographers, the photojournalist out on the front line shooting black and white film. Uh, there's a romance to black and white that, that I find lacking with color. Uh, so I, I, I really, I am doing everything in black and white. That's how I uh, see imagery.
1: Yeah, we're going to definitely put uh, links to all your uh, social media and website in the show notes. But people, you have to go take a look at Tony's work. Uh, really super stuff. And uh, just... Fantastic with people. You do a lot of people photography. Talk to me about that because, uh, like you said, you've been on several of, of my trips. You've uh, done a few other ones, but uh, uh, one thing that you taught me was approaching people and really um, just being bold and but but in a good way, not uh, you know not being obnoxious or anything. So I really uh, that that's had a big impact on me. Talk to me about your approach to photographing people. Right. Well, it's an evolutionary change in my own photography.
2: Um, You know, I've been to Cambodia many, many times over the last 10, 12 years. Mm -hmm. I used to shoot just ruins and temples and uh, those kind of scenes, trying to avoid people. Um, I think as my photography evolved more towards a street social documentary style, I started seeking out people and um, trying to include them in every shot, essentially. But um, I I think if you um, are sensitive to the culture, sensitive to the... some of the mores and traditions and have an understanding of how much people will accept. I think you can slowly get into people's personal space to photograph them without being intrusive. I, I don't like to intrude. I don't want to offend somebody who doesn't want to be photographed, but I think that, um, you know, I, I, I poke my head. You've been around with me, Ralph. I poke my head into, into doors and into, into openings and kind of, walk in with a smile on my face, a camera in hand, kind of a gesture, universal sign language, you know, is it okay to shoot in here? And um, I I still do a lot of that. Uh, I believe in, for me at least, because I want to capture images of everyday life, but away from where the tourists are shooting. And now as a people photographer, rather than uh, a landscape photographer, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of one of my goals. I go off, go to situations where there is a, a, a lively street photography scene, or where life is lived out on the streets, i.e., Havana, most of southeast Southeast Asia, India. You know, life is lived on the streets so
1: much differently than it is, at least where I live in Southern California. Yeah, and, and your photography, you're uh, you're not using flash at all, right? You're just shooting with ambient lights. Right, I'm a, a simple photographer. I, I, uh,
2: just ambient light, natural light. I, I don't bring a lot of gear. Um, now I'm bringing two cameras because I'm bringing digital and film, but, uh, you know, it's essentially one camera, one lens, especially since I started going to, uh, uh, in the Leica system, I use prime lenses and they're all manual focus. So I don't carry a lot of other lenses and I stick with, uh, I stick with that. I like the constraints. I think the constraints add to creativity, add to make you a better photographer.
1: Yeah, tell us a little bit about your setup. What prime lenses are you using? As you know, I'm I'm almost uh, 100% using
2: uh, a Leica rangefinder system. Uh, It's the M system. Their lenses are manual lenses, so I have a, a 35 and a 50. 35 sits on my film camera. The 50 sits on the digital. I can swap them if I need them. Uh, it's an entirely manual system, so manual focus. Uh, they're small, inobtrusive, inoffensive. You're not approaching somebody with, you know, the I, I have the big white lens from Canon, um, <laughs> and I used to use that, but you know that that's kind of uh, intimidating to pull out when you're on the streets and people are trying to go about their daily lives. But with a small rangefinder. You hardly know you you as a photographer, are hardly notice, especially if you hang around a while. People just kind of ignore you.
0: I love what you said about constraints, and uh, still at the same time, I'm finding myself trying more and more to overcome to avoid constraints. I recently ordered a drone so that I can free myself from the constraint of having my feet on the ground but so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going just a different perspective totally the opposite direction but still I I absolutely agree with what you said constraints make us more more creative
2: (laughs) I used to shoot with a a zoom on my canon the 2470 which is a real popular uh, focal length Um, but you know you find that you really don't hunt for the good angles if you can just zoom your lens in and out and I started changing when I went to a prime lens with my Canon, a prime uh, Zeiss 50 millimeter, where I've, you had to move around to um, size up the composition. You know, you, so it, it that constraint I think added to creativity. Now you've got to be more proactive in finding the uh, the angle for that will fit that field of view of that lens. Uh, obviously, there are things that I can't get with a 50 millimeter. And um, I just don't worry about it. I don't go after the the, the long-distance shots because they're beyond me. So I focus on something different.
1: Tony, you know, I remember shooting film years ago, and it was always an issue about getting through airports and, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, tell us what the latest is with that and film these days. How, how do you, uh, you know, what's your workflow for that?
2: Well, it starts off with crossed fingers. Um, As you know, back in the pre-digital days, everybody had those lead-lined bags to protect the film from the scanners. But uh, airport security wants to know what's inside everything. The TSA uh, advises film carriers to take the film out of the box, out of the plastic container, and just put in a bag a clear plastic bag as a as a loose roll of film so i have a baggie of how how many number rolls of film i need 25 rolls of film all loose with the leaders out it enables tsa to quickly swab the film as they take it i always hold it out and i ask i need a hand inspection hand inspection and i insist they comply i've been lucky on that Um, but as you know, going to the other side of the world, you're going through several scanners. So you really don't want to accumulate the radiation into the film as it will begin to fog the film. So I always insist, uh, hold my baggie out as I'm in the line with my, uh, my backpack and pulling my computer out. I got my baggie in hand saying, please, you know, um, I need a film scan, a hand scan, So far, all the airports I've gone through have complied, and um, sometimes they take longer to swab it. The TSA is very thorough. They have swabbed every single roll at one time. Some airports take their time, and they'll just look at it, make certain that it's just film, and then pass it through. But that was a concern, Um, but I've I've been lucky. None of my film has has gone through uh, any kind of scanner.
0: Is 25 rolls typical for a a trip of how many days? How fast do you go through film?
2: I bring 25 rolls, so I have a mix. Um, And that's just kind of an arbitrary figure. I usually, on a trip of about three weeks over to Asia, I'll probably shoot about half of that. And I've got different speeds. So I'll have some 100-speed film and 400-speed film. But I, I have the mix.
1: What's that like going from you know being able to change your ISO every shot to now you're back to the fact that you've got uh, you know ASA film speed and you got to shoot through a whole roll? How does that work for you?
2: Ah, uh, talk about constraints. <laughs> you almost have to plan ahead, thinking, am I going to be in some darker areas? And outside, if so, maybe I better plan if the bulk of my shooting is going to be in like a temple or something like that, maybe I will put in a faster roll of film. Or I may push the film, like turning the ISO up on a digital camera, push the film, which is, for example, taking a 400 speed film and treating it as if it's 1600, pushing it two stops, which results in an underexposed film. So you have to compensate when you get home by changing your development times, increasing the development time, so it can bring out the, uh, the image. But yes, you do have to think about that. And it, it's you don't have the convenience of uh, changing ISOs depending on your situation. So I, I uh, kind of figure maybe I'll take a little bit faster film than normal.
1: Yeah, and you know, I was under the misunderstanding that film was going away, that this you know film was not being manufactured anymore, and that there was just this finite amount out there, and that eventually it was all going to be gone. Talk to me about the fact that uh, Kodak is still manufacturing film, Ilford, Fuji, there's there's still manufacturers out there. How does that work? Film is actually
2: uh, enjoying a resurgence. Kodak went bankrupt, as you know. Um... Uh, The employees' pension plan bought out and recitated the uh, company again. So there's Kodak Alaris. But they've always been producing film, and and now they're ramping up their production because there's more and more demand for film. Ilford, an old British company, has been producing black and white film forever, and they're still dedicated to that. Um, Some companies have cut some of their lines but are focusing on certain more popular lines of film. There are a few new companies producing new film now. Uh, some European companies, uh, Ugo may be familiar with them, uh, Berger, uh, roly they're producing more uh, black and white films. But surprisingly enough, Ralph, a lot of people are trying to find expired film. They're hunting eBay, hunting down on eBay, looking for expired film because they like the the unpredictability of the results. But yes, there's the film market is alive and thriving.
1: Yeah, that really surprised me when you and I talked a little bit about that. Uh, you know, it seems like going back the way you have to film is almost like music fans preferring the imperfection of vinyl. Right. Well,
2: I don't know if it's an imperfection or just character.
1: But uh, okay, okay.
2: And, and, and vinyl is, is uh, undergoing a resurgence now. But I think people are looking for, especially the younger generation, are looking for something that's not quite so predictable, not quite so digitally clinical. So they're, they're uh, turning to these uh, analog old school technologies.
1: Yeah, I guess that's what I mean by imperfections. You know, those little pops and hisses that you get in vinyl, and uh, perhaps it's the digital or the uh, the film equivalent of that. Right, right. And I, I think it's
2: there's more process involved. So I think people like that idea of not knowing what you get right away, the process of waiting uh, to be surprised later on, if you're doing your own developing, that hands-on process of... Bringing coaxing out the image, a latent image, and um, rather than just seeing it immediately on the back of the uh, LCD screen.
0: Any plans to go with larger formats than 35 millimeters? Because when I, I sometimes fancy the the idea of getting a view camera on those large large format slide film, and using that, I mean, I, w- I would not think of going. Film for thirty-five millimeters. I would maybe think of going it for, for larger formats because digital is just not there. Do, do you have any plans or uh, ideas to going with a larger format? Uh,
2: not really, Hugo. Um, it one, it's too cumbersome for travel purposes.
0: Two,
2: most large format one twenty film has got either 10 or 12 shots on a roll. So you're very limited. And, um, I think for around, around town, it might work. I've actually watched some videos on YouTube regarding medium format, but I think for travel purposes, the gear's bigger. You're going to have to bring more rolls of film to uh, cover like a three week trip. So I'm, uh, I, I prefer 35 millimeter
0: yeah it's definitely
2: plus for, all the money to buy yeah. into a new system
0: <laughs> it's yeah it's definitely probably the, the way to go for for travel it's a large format is more for a landscape where you have all the time in the world to put the, down your tripod and heavy view camera and, and that rather than as you said poke your head into a, a house in india or cambodia or some place like that i mean you cannot really do that with a with a large, heavy camera on a tripod, probably. Yeah.
1: Right. Tony, is there any new technology that you're using for this, you know, quote, older way of photographing? Any apps, things like that, that are, that are helping you with this?
2: Uh, surprisingly enough, there is a uh, iPhone Android app that almost all film guys are using, and it's called Massive dev dev chart and it has a combination of all the various films that you can imagine with all the various developers available and you mix and match those uh combinations and it'll give you the development time the agitation scheme the washing times the fixing times uh the final wash times on the app and it has countdown timers uh, especially for agitation schemes, telling you when to agitate, when to start, when to stop. And uh, as far as I know, almost every film shooter is using that app if they're developing at home.
1: That's pretty cool. I love that idea of you know this, this new technology being married with this older technology. And it sounds fantastic, like a great app, especially uh, if everyone's using it. There must be something to it.
2: Yeah, definitely definitely it makes it easier um to figure out that time and temperature combination for your film
1: do you have any uh trips coming up that you've got planned i know you're always uh, heading back to asia what well i'm uh up?
2: starting to put together a little trip to india probably in late february uh calcutta kolkata and varanasi uh i was there last february um Enjoyed it quite a bit. So I'm going back to India. India's kind of on my trip uh, list of return places. I've been going there for, I don't know, a number of years now. And And then now that Havana's making it, now that it's easier to go to Cuba, Havana is becoming one of my regular return places. So I'll probably go back there, maybe June.
1: Yeah, it's nice for, for those of us in the U.S. because it's right here in this, this hemisphere and there's not a lot of time difference to get down there. Um, now, you mentioned Cambodia earlier, and I know that, that that Cambodia's got a real place in your heart. And you actually turned me on to Cambodia. Speaking of Havana, uh, I remember that uh, you and I and another friend of ours were uh, sitting in a La Lluvia de Odo. <laughs> one of my favorite bars there in Havana, and we we're talking about where we're going to go next. And you said, "Let's go to Cambodia," because you'd been there—I don't know, eight or ten or ten times—and you've been trying to get me to go. And we decided that that—I uh, think this was May—and uh, that December we were found ourselves in Cambodia, and you turned me on to one of my new favorite countries.
2: Right, right, and I'm glad I did. Cambodia is a fantastic place. I've been going there. I think yearly since two thousand four. Yeah, it's just one of those countries that uh, has burrowed into my heart. The people are fantastic. They're gentle. They're open. They're tolerant, especially given their horrific history. Some, you know, in the mid seventies. It's just a, uh, and it's very easy to travel in Cambodia. It's very
1: user friendly, as you'd well know. You know, everything is running on the dollar. Yeah, to me, that's one of the best parts about it, especially when I bring groups there, is that it's so easy. We don't have to think about you know what the cost of things are because essentially they, they work on the U.S. dollar, although they've got their own currency. You go to an ATM and U.S. dollars come out. So for U.S. citizens, it makes it very simple. And uh, you don't have the conversion costs and you kind of know what Uh, what things cost but sometimes you'll you'll buy a bottle of water with a a dollar and they will give you change in the local riel and then you just use it to buy something else but uh, right uh, the food is just off the charts fantastic there and like you say the people just wonderful so i'm i want to thank you for for turning me on to a great great place
2: great i'm and i'm glad that you're uh, introducing
1: more people to cambodia
2: Uh, i I think cambodia you know, needs to be discovered by more
1: people. Yeah, I don't think one person hasn't just fallen in love with it.
0: Yeah, I was uh, actually, yesterday there was a post by somebody on Facebook that was uh, showing the lineup of photographers at uh, Anchor Getting ready to shoot oh. the sunrise. And when you say, okay, it's not being discovered by many people, but maybe that specific place is a bit <laughs> too much discovered. Uh, yes. Like uh, 5,000 people. <laughs> okay.
2: Right, right. Angkor Wat is now one of the most uh, popular tourist destinations. But there's more to Cambodia than just Angkor Wat. Yeah, I'm sure there is.
1: But yeah, that, that that's the gauntlet there, trying to photograph sunrise at Angkor Wat. And there's more to see them reap than just Angkor Wat. There's so many different parts of that largest religious complex in the world. So, yeah, it's it's almost a law that you have to go to sunrise at Angkor Wat because it's a sight to see. But it's uh, very easy to get off the beaten path. And uh, I hesitate to, to mention this. but And you might have even turned me on to this trick, Tony, is that instead of what what we do is we do the sunrise and then we go to the back of the back of Angkor Wat. So we go east right, and then and come, come in. back into the temple. Exactly. Right. So I'm sure you turn me on to that idea, and that's right. a great way to avoid people. Right. right. And you uh, end up meeting
2: your tuk tuk driver. He's parked on the west side in that big parking lot there. Mm-hmm. But you're walking through from east to west, mm-hmm. kind of going against the crowd because they're all rushing in from the west side and uh you get a better view of the temples or a different view of the temples and without too many of the people
1: right so as you can imagine if you're photographing to the east as the sun rises it's just natural for everyone to go right through the temple or through the entrance there but we go around to the back and then come through the opposite way and so we miss a lot of those people so that's a that's a great tip for people that are going there and uh, want to try to get off the beaten track. What are just, uh, just a couple of the other of your other favorite uh, parts of Angkor Wat? The complex.
2: Uh, like most people, I, I find the Bayon. That's mm-hmm. that multi-tiered temple. The smallish temple, but has all the faces. Mm-hmm. I, I find that very fascinating. Partly because it's got all kinds of little nooks and crannies deep inside the temple, and it has kind of a, a whimsical. Air to it, at least for me. Um, again, that's a popular temple with most people, but um, it's, e- it's small, it's easy to explore, it's kind of fun to explore the dark recesses inside. And then obviously the top the, the famous uh, Tomb Raider temple, Prey Khan, another large temple with these great trees growing out of it. But there are uh, are smaller temples farther out. Um, I don't know if you and I went to some of them. Uh, Mebon, the Elephant Temple, Rolos Group.
1: Yes, we did go there. Right.
2: But as you know, you can get templed out. So it's nice to take a detour out to, uh, at least in Siem Reap, there's the uh, two floating villages, really. But it's nice to go out to uh, either one of those uh, to see rural life, or on a on a yeah
1: you know, on a lake or on a river. Yeah, Kampong Flok is the one that we go to, and right. uh, that's fantastic. You've got the flooded forest there, right?
0: Yeah, you go on a temple overdose, maybe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we call that there. It's the acronym is SWAT. So what? Another temple. You just get templed out, and, uh, so you got to kind of choose choose those wisely
0: okay so I think we are at the at the end of our time here and um, it's been uh, great talking to you Tony um, again it's a great opportunity and I wish to thank Ralph for putting us in direct contact even though we have been somewhat in contact through social media before and um, anything else you would like to add before we wrap this up
2: uh briefly if I may I... Sure. Ralph asked me for a couple of tips.
1: <clears throat> yes.
2: One, Please. go slow. Take your time. Let a scene develop itself. This is photographically. Mm-hmm. Let a scene develop itself. Two, go deep. By that I mean try to develop an understanding of the local culture so you can kind of penetrate down a layer or two into the local society. Uh, Going, that will lead you to photography beyond the tourist postcard shot. And three, go elsewhere. Everybody heads to Ankar Wat, sunrise. There are other places to go. There are little temples and shrines tucked into the forest there at the scene. Go elsewhere, go different places than the tourists go. Go down the alley, go down the little small lane, poke your head into these kitchens or machine shops things like that. And I think you'll find your photography will be uh, rewarded.
0: Awesome. So, Tony, where can people go to find more about you online? Uh,
2: My main website, which needs some updating, anthonypondphoto.com. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook and on Flickr under Anthony Pond. And more of my current work shows up on those sites.
0: Yeah, we'll sure put links to those uh, on the show notes. And any parting words from Ralph?
1: Uh, Tony, just want to thank you for uh, spending the time with us. Uh, Been wanting to get you on the show for a while. It's something that uh, that this idea of going back to film is something that I think will really interest our our listeners. So thanks for uh, shedding some really interesting light on that. And uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you, my friend.
0: Okay, thank you. Wow, what a great guest. I really enjoyed listening to the stories that uh, Anthony Palmer told us. And if you want more stories, you should definitely tune in next week. Our guest will bring us back in time more than 60 years to the time of the Cuban Revolution and Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. So stay tuned for another great episode that you will be able to find, as always, on our website at ttim.photo. Before leaving, I just want to remember that you can find me, Ugo Che, at ucphoto.me and my partner, Ralph Velasco, at photoenrichment.com. Thanks for listening.